Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Langston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice. It brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. Follow them at ReconditioningHQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook group, Reconditioning HQ Revolution, and join the Reconditioning Revolution. We can't grow this podcast without you, the listener, or the support of our amazing sponsors. This year, we are pleased to announce the support of Matrix Fitness, one of the largest commercial fitness brands in the world and one of the fastest growing in the industry. Matrix Fitness produces training tools that focus on improving the training experience for athletes and coaches alike. With equipment that focuses on building speed, power, and explosive performance in the most efficient manner, Matrix has partnered with some of the top sporting organizations in the world. As a global brand with local support, the Matrix performance team assists their customers with solutions, research, and training protocols so coaches can focus on what they do best, help athletes prepare for competition, and getting better. For more information, please request their sports performance package from their Canadian Director of Education, Annie.Vilnive at matrixfitness.com and mention the Leave Your Mark podcast to qualify for your 20% discount. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston and today I have the honor of speaking with Andreas Bem. Andreas is currently the lead sprints and hurdles coach and VP of performance at Altus. Andreas has been with Altus since 2013. He coached Aries Merritt to Olympic gold and 110 meter world record in 2012. Last season, a Chinese hurdler Zi Wenjun finished fifth at the Doha IAAF World Championships. He's had athletes compete at three Olympic Games and eight World Championships and traveled all over the world thanks to sports. I'm pleased to have him with me here today. Welcome, Andreas. Hi, Scott. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to chat with you. Yeah, well, I've, uh, it's about time, actually, because I've chatted with some of the different guys at Altus, and you obviously are very good at what you do and have a great reputation both as a coach and as a human being. So it's nice to have you on and to chat. Um, you mentioned in your, in your bio that you um, grew up in Spain and Germany. I'm curious uh, why you were over in Spain and Germany, and was that because I, I know it's your father that's German, so is that uh, sort of the gen- genesis of when you were living over there? What was he doing, and why were you there? Uh, yes, so you are correct. I, was, uh, I grew up in Spain and Germany as a child. Um, I was born in Germany and uh, my dad is German and my mom is American. They actually mm-hmm. both uh, still live over in Frankfurt, Germany okay. uh, right now. So, and yeah, my dad is German. My mom is American. She, uh, they met in Europe and uh, I think my mom decided to stay uh, in Europe long term. She's been in Europe for over 35 years now. So, Wow. What did, uh, what did your dad do for a living? 
So my dad uh, was a journalist. Uh, he's retired now. Um, uh-huh. And hence, he uh, had assignments in Germany. And when uh, basically, I was very young when I left Germany. I was born in Frankfurt. And then we left to go to Spain uh, for my dad to take an assignment uh, as a journalist in Madrid. Okay. And the family followed along. And after about eight to nine years in Spain, we came back to Germany and Frankfurt after that. So you're fluent in a bunch of different languages then, I suppose, as, as it says in your bio. But you can rock them, sock them, robots in Spanish, German, English. What else? Yes, I speak, uh, speak French as well. So some French, uh, which I mainly picked up through uh, school and uh, traveling into France and Belgium. And then we have a couple Japanese and Chinese athletes. So I've added a couple words in those <laughs> languages, but can't say that I speak either one of them. But at least I won't, awesome. I won't, yeah, I won't starve. I wouldn't starve to death in either China or um, Japan. I could at least ask for food and water. I'm going to swing back to that a little bit later because I think there's an interesting topic to come out of that in terms of cultural differences and athletes that we run into, but I don't want to swing into that quite so rapidly. But as a, as you're growing up, you are um, kind of involved a lot in sport uh, and, and driven to do that through your parents or not. Uh, like what's, what's life like as you're growing up uh, sportish or not? Right. So I definitely was involved in sport. I was always interested in sport, even at a young age. Um, I tried different sports growing up, whether that was in Spain or Germany. So I did uh, judo as a very young kid. Uh, I played soccer. I played tennis. So fairly European sports per se. Mm-hmm. But I also really, really liked American sports. I loved watching basketball. I loved watching football. Um, you know, I played basketball. Um, not really, they don't have teams in high school, but, in, but I played like kind of, it wasn't even, it's kind of a mixture between PE and like a club. Mm. Um, if you saw, well, I played basketball. I was pretty good in Europe until mm. I went to college in the States and then realized that every single person in America was way better at basketball than I was. <laughs> so, you know, um, that's when you realize they, they've been playing, you know, Americans are playing for so much longer and, so what, did, what drove you to go to school in the States? How did that all come together? Um, so, like I said, I was always very interested in sport, and I was very active in sport. Um, I watched a lot of American sports on television uh, through the uh, Armed Forces Network, as Germany still had a large uh, American military presence mm. um, around. They had their own um, channel that would broadcast different sitcoms, um, news shows, uh, and a lot of sports. So I would often on the weekends when I didn't have school, I would stay up or get up in the middle of the night to watch NBA games or NFL games because that's when they were on TV. And mm. so, you know, I'd have all the stats, um, you know, I'd, 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 this is even before the internet to a certain extent, the internet was just kind of coming, becoming mainstream. Mm. So I'd, I'd get all the stats and look up all the box scores in newspapers because we had USA Today over there. And, you know, when the internet came on, I'd look at all the stats and I'd know I'd have all my favorite players. And so I knew I wanted to be involved in sport. Hmm. Through my playing in sport early on, I also realized fairly soon that I probably was not going to be involved in sport as a professional athlete Hmm. because I was, let's just say, very average at uh, most of these sports (laughs) I played. I had a great time. I wasn't horrible. But I was dead average. 
<laughs> and there were always players who were way better than I was, way faster than I was, you know, way more physically imposing. So, you know, pretty early on, reason set in that, you know what, if you want to do something in sport, it's probably not going to be as an athlete. Mm. Um, I looked at studying sport in Germany, but found that the sporting culture at American universities are way uh, more developed uh, than anywhere in Germany. The opportunities in the United States to learn and be involved in sport are a lot uh, more prevalent. Hmm. So my initial thought and my initial idea was to study in the States uh, to become a general manager. So I, I, I'd never coached before. I wanted to be a guy who was in charge of running the team. Again, at this point, I loved stats. I loved, I loved watching trades. I liked watching the you know, NBA and NFL draft and all that good stuff. And I'd have like my own mock drafts and try to pick the players that I wanted. And I get really upset if someone took the player that I liked, uh, you know, beforehand. Um, again, all purely hypothetical, just in fun. But, you know, I really thought that was a interesting way to contribute to sport in terms of building a team. Um, so that was my ambition. And I went to, I applied to a lot of different universities in the States um, but interestingly, the grade point system in Germany is different. So I finished high school in Germany where one is the best grade you can receive and six is the worst. And so I was a good student, not a, not an A plus student. Um, but I had a 1.8 GPA and I sent an explanation to all the U S universities, a notarized explanation explaining how this works and what the conversion was and all this good stuff. And I kept getting these letters back. You have a 1.8 GPA. You need to go to community college to get your grades up. <laughs> Why are you applying to university with your grades? The University of Tennessee is the only school that understood the conversion. We're like, yeah, come on. And so that's how I ended up at the University of Tennessee. <laughs> um, that's you know, I, I, Yeah, I, I tried to pick schools that were, you know, big into sports, Tennessee, I'd never been to Tennessee. I knew nothing of the state. I knew, you know, I barely knew where it was located in the States. Um, but they had won the, the year before I came. They were a football powerhouse back then. It was mm. uh, two years removed from Peyton Manning. Uh, they, they just won a national title. Um, I guess one of the interesting trivia questions is always, who is the quarterback at the University of Tennessee when they won their national title? And most uninformed people will say, oh, it must clearly must have been Peyton Manning. Well, it was actually a year after Peyton Manning. It was T. Martin and one of my favorite Tennessee receivers and great sports names of all time, Peerless Price, <laughs> along with the ferocious defense that led Tennessee to their national championships. I, of course, watched that late at night on American Armed Forces Network TV. And so I decided to apply to the University of Tennessee. Our sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com, is back this year with a big lineup of courses across the country and beyond. The practice of reconditioning is literally changing the way we see physical preparation. This is an approach that brings the worlds of therapy and performance together that helps you as a practitioner build more robust clients. Not just rehab injuries or train for fitness and performance, but make people more robust. Life isn't about surviving longer, it's about thriving. And Reconditioning HQ is offering a life mentorship program called Empower You, totally designed to help human performance professionals live their best life. After all we do for others, shouldn't we do our best work for ourselves? 
If you have an interest in ice hockey, ReconditioningHQ.com, Perform Better, and Matrix Fitness are bringing the best in hockey performance to Mont Tremblant, Quebec, June 27th to 28th, and it's going to be epic. Check out all of their course offerings on ReconditioningHQ.com today. Wow. Were you uh, unusual in terms of with your friends being so interested in what was going on in the States versus what was going on in, in your own home nation? Um, or did you have so a much. bunch of friends who you were all, you were all looking at what's going on in, in America? Well, yeah, we had a bunch of different friends who were, uh, you know, interested in what was going on in America. But, uh, I mean, I grew up in a big city. I grew up in a multicultural city, uh, Frankfurt. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of my friends came from different, um, backgrounds, um, you know, from different countries, different immigrant countries, um, an interesting side story in high school, which kind of also led me to the understanding of the power of sport is that. I went to high school around the time of the Yugoslav conflict. So obviously mm. Serbia, uh, Bosnia, and Croatia were all uh, at a state of civil war. And we had a lot of um, immigrant families fleeing that situation, coming into Germany and being integrated into our school system. And you can understand, based on the violent nature of that conflict, that some of these kids, their parents could have killed some other kids' parents in that school. Mm. I do not know if that happened per se, but, you know, that was the tension that we had within these, you know, these new people coming in because they were coming in from different warring factions at the time. The one time where there was peace and quiet was when there was recess and we got to roll out a tennis ball and play, like, you know, concrete soccer. Everyone got along, and the second, you know, the soccer tennis ball went away, it went back to being this tension. So you could clearly see the inclusive power of sport mm. through just a simple example is that and that was definitely not lost on me as i went through um, high school what what's so, what most attracted you to sport like is, was it the competitive nature of it was it the physicality of it was what what the athletes could do was if you know interesting to you what what kind of inspired you in sport when you watched it well, I really think you, you named a couple, a couple things. It's all of the above as well as just the, you know, I feel like sport is such a galvanizing force. Mm. Um, you know, it's also something that is always on the limits of human potential, if you so will. You all see a great play in basketball, a great, you know, free quick and soccer, something that you've never seen before. And it's raw, unfiltered and unscripted. It's not TV. Um, you know, it's you, you, the outcome is undetermined. And both sides, or however many sides are involved, are prepared to the best of their ability and knowledge and are giving the best effort possible to achieve a favorable outcome um, as they go uh, throughout this competition. But you never know exactly. Mm-hmm. Like, I think you never know. You can be as well prepared as possible and still come up short. Like, mm-hmm. there's a lot of triumph, a lot of heartbreak involved. You know, it's a, a microcosm of a lot of things that we uh, as humans go through on a you know, on a daily basis, on a journey through our lives, which I thought was really interesting. But it involves a lot of play, too. It's fun. It's exciting. So I think all those things were a combination that are really interested me in sport. There's a lot of camaraderie and, uh, you know, teammates, teammates being involved and all that good stuff. So, yeah, I think there are a lot of aspects that, you know, drew me to that, that, cool. that field. So you go to University of Tennessee in sort of sports management, and how does that – become not something you end up going into and then you move into 
the world of coaching and stuff. Tell me about the dynamics of how all that transpires. Right. So it really started with a thought process. I went to the University of Tennessee with a um, you know, very clear understanding of what I wanted to do and how I wanted to go about achieving that mm-hmm. in that I wanted to study sport management, which I was doing, and to become a general manager or you know, work in, start off working in a, a front office of a, uh, of a sports organization. What sport, I did not know yet, but I just wanted to kind of form a basic basis for that. Um, intuitively, I understood that in order to evaluate talent, you have to understand movement. And you have to be able to watch movement and be able to evaluate it. So I decided as part of my study program that instead of doing something that was say, more administrative in nature, I asked my advisor if I could help out with the track and field program. Because in my brain, and understand, I had never done track other than running some sprints in PE and doing some form of long jump and other small things in PE. Um, I basically only watched track on TV when I could as probably part of the Olympics or world championships when a big meet was on. Like any other, let's say, casual fan would as well. So without any understanding of track, I intuitively knew that it was the foundation for a lot of sports because what is more foundational than running fast, jumping, being able to throw things far, which seemed to apply to a myriad of sports. So I felt like if I could understand movement, I would be able to evaluate talent and what better way to understand movement than to go to the basics in track and field. And so that was my first stop in track and field. I was a team, I was an intern at first, and then I was a, it liked me enough to keep me on as a team manager. So, you know, I'd do all the grunt work. I'd carry stuff, I'd dig up pits, I'd video, I'd break down footage, but I'd also really be paying attention in training to what the coaches were saying and how the athletes were moving and how they were correcting movement and what the coaches deemed to be appropriate movement versus non-appropriate movement. And so I was, you know, making, taking notes and trying to piece together, if I'm watching someone, what do I need to be aware of? And how can I, how can I evaluate the better movers from the worst movers in terms of talent selection? Mm. So along the way, I got hooked. I was like, <laughs> man, this, co- this coaching thing is actually really cool. I don't spend much time in the office. It's interpersonal. You're helping people reach their aspirations and dreams or help them towards those goals. It's a puzzle between art and science, which was really intriguing to me. And there are always new challenges that come up. You continue to create better problems for yourself or the athlete. Mm -hmm. And so through that first experience, I was like, I might actually like coaching, but I didn't have very much background in coaching. So I was just kind of, you know, I didn't quite know what I was going to do at that point after my undergrad. Mm -hmm. So, but that was kind of where the, the seed was kind of planted and it was still underground just kind of deciding which direction I guess it was going to, you know, grow its way to the surface. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. Um, To sort of segue off of that, and I don't know where this is going to go to, but um, I'm kind of curious as, as you have grown in, in the nature of what you do, obviously you come from this track or athletics um, background now. Um, and when I have encountered European athletes over the years uh, in different sports, there's kind of this European undertone that everybody kind of does some track, some gymnastics, and, you know, some of these kind of multi, 
multi-loading sports where the, you know they might get into tennis or soccer or something and they become more versatile athletes in some sense whereas in north america we've had this drive for quite a number of years now too and we see it sort of this early specialization sort of model where people get into being a hockey player being a football player etc um do you do you think that that's still the nature of the two worlds or has that changed in europe now and and is it changing now in North America? Like, what do you see there in terms of the, the weakness and strength of, of those two models in some sense? I want to take a minute to connect you to our newest sponsor, Zenkai Sports, who are here with a question for you. Why do we sweat? Our body is perfectly designed to cool us down, but most apparel companies use moisture-wicking fabrics that remove our sweat, which makes us overheat faster and actually hurts our performance. Zenkai uses cutting-edge technology that repels sweat and other liquids. Zenkai apparel lets the sweat stay on your skin, keeping you cool for longer and repelling odor-causing bacteria. This means Zenkai apparel can be worn 10, 15, 20 times with no washing required. This lowers your carbon footprint and saves money, so you can be a hero with your planet and your family. Join the revolution for better apparel technology. What's in your ZNA? We've partnered with Zenkai, so if you head over to www.zenkaisports.com and use the discount code LYM20, you'll get 20% off your entire order. Yeah, so it's it's somewhat hard for me to comment because I've actually lived in the States almost full-time since 1999. Right. So anything I could talk about would only be speculative in nature. I know when I was growing up, most European kids slash athletes would definitely play more than one sport. Mm-hmm. You know, that was very, very common. Like it wasn't just, oh, I'm a soccer player or I'm a you know tennis player. You would often play three days a week, you'd go play soccer, two days a week, you'd go play, you know, basketball. It would, you'd go to different clubs and try different things. Um, you know, and you wouldn't have people necessarily just stick with one sport, but they kind of tried to def- try to find a sport that suited them. And, um, you know, even to this day, I feel like a lot of Europeans still tend to, um, strive to be the best athlete they can be possible. Now that can mean whatever it means for every individual, whether that means you're the best dart player or bowler possible then that's fantastic you know uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean everyone's going out and running sprints but they they have some form of athletic endeavor or culture embedded in them which i think is is not quite the same in the states where i can for sure attest that in the states now the and there's clearly a a backlash trend now but for the last decade there has been a uh, trend towards uh, specialization and probably over early specialization in youth athletes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've quite enjoyed the European model where I feel like there's a little more freedom to kind of explore and find yourself within a sporting culture mm-hmm. as opposed to be just stuck into a cog and a machine uh, that's trying to churn out a, a, you know, a highly skilled and specialized um, athlete. I'm sure you can find examples in either direction that have worked mm-hmm. fantastically and probably examples in either direction where uh, it hasn't worked so well. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, I've also heard people who've done a lot of sports that maybe were pretty good, but not quite at the skill level of some of their peers. Be like, man, I wish I'd started playing this sport a little earlier and focused a little more on it. So I've heard that argument too. So have you um, noticed in, in, in track athletes that, um, that they tend to be um, track dominant through their, their lives or do a lot of track athletes have a, 
diverse sport portfolio when they're younger and then focus in on track and field and some specific dimension of track and field in some minutes? So generally I found that track athletes have a fairly diverse sport portfolio uh, simply because a lot of track athletes, especially in their you know, developmental years, teenage years throughout high school, um, they're already really, really fast and really good. So they get recruited by other sports like, oh, you're fast. You should come play football. Oh, you're really quick. Hey, you want to play basketball in the, in the fall? You know, oh, you're, you know, you're really quick. You should, you're, you've got really long limbs. You should come play tennis as well. So I think they get the, because of their general raw athleticism, doors into other sports venues get opened for them as opposed to where you know, if you play another sport, you're not necessarily always recruited to play track or the actual other sport coaches get upset if you play track because they think you'll get hurt playing track, but they have no problem recruiting track athletes to come and play their sport, if that makes sense. <laughs> but I think there's a lot of dual, you know, I think there's still a lot of dual sport athletes. Like you see these statistics out there that a lot of high level uh, college football guys were also ran track in uh, high school. So again, you know, I think a variety um, of sporting um, you know, endeavors is a great, is a great thing for a developing person. That would just be like studying one subject in school. You want to broaden yourself as an intellectual individual. Why not broaden yourself as a, uh, you know, as a physical individual as well? Mm -hmm. Was there anybody sort of in this transitional period for you as a, either a coach or teacher that really had an influence on, on sort of, and inspired you to keep moving in that direction? At the most recent 2019 World Junior Hockey Championships in the Czech Republic, Team Canada's number one goalie was Nico Dawes. Nico is a great story. Heading into his NHL draft year, he was not on the Canadian team's radar. In the summer of 2019, Nico trained hard with the support of the great team at Shield Performance in Burlington, Ontario. He built up his body armor and lost 25 pounds. He came to the Guelph Storm camp in the best shape of his life and earned the number one spot for the defending OHL champs. And then earned his spot with Team Canada on one of the hockey world's largest stages. One of the tools used by Nico was the Matrix Fitness S-Force Performance Trainer. The S-Force is a no-impact, weight-bearing training tool that can improve fast-twitch muscle fiber, increase explosive performance, and support many conditioning objectives. Matrix Fitness produces training tools that focus on improving the training experience for athletes and coaches alike. For more information, please request the Matrix Fitness Sports Performance Package from their Canadian Director of Education, Annie.Villeneuve, at matrixfitness.com. And mention the Leave Your Mark podcast to qualify for your 20% discount. Well, I think uh, to get to that, I think I need to kind of outlay a little bit more of my, my history and where, it kind yeah. of, where I kind of went after the university. So Yeah, for sure. You know, I started by saying, uh, you know, my mom and dad still live in Frankfurt. My dad was a journalist by trade and my mom was a data information specialist. Mm. So by design... I think I was always interested in information hmm. and I was curious about the world based on, you know, the way my parents were wired. Hmm. Uh, my parents had a lot of pretty much books in every room of the house, wall to wall, like lots of bookshelves. They were always reading, whether it's a newspaper or a book. So again, I was very interested in information and being able to, you know, find out information that I was interested in. Hmm. So after, by nature, after Tennessee, I kind of, thought that I might want to be a coach, but I wasn't sure. And so what I did was um, 
in all fairness, I loved my time at Tennessee. Great <laughs> university, go volunteers. But I didn't learn as much as I thought I would in the sport management department. Right. So I felt like I still needed to do something academically. Like my high school education in Germany was way harder than my college undergrad. Hmm. So I went to the University of Texas uh, for grad school to study the same thing, sport management. I looked into studying kinesiology in terms of a grad program as a coach. What stopped me from doing it was I just didn't have the academic background. I would need too many prerequisites, which would almost be getting like another degree before I could start the actual degree that I wanted. Mm. So I just decided I was going to study sport management again, because at worst, I would have a background in business to fall back on if I, if I decided to do something else. And I was pretty young. I was only 22 at the time. Um, so I went to University of Texas to study sport management, and I had the same idea. I'm going to... Um, I'm going to, you know, go help out with the track team and continue learning about movement and coaching. And then I can kind of, after two more years of this, I can kind of decide what direction I want to head off in. And once I got to Texas, I started, I started looking up the uh, roster. Mind you, first time I moved to Tennessee, you know, I didn't know anyone there. Just moved there with a couple suitcases. When I moved to Texas, same thing. Never been to Texas. Just took a couple suitcases, just off I go, you know, out there by myself. Um, and when I got to Texas, I looked up the track and field roster. And there was a coach. His name was Dan Path. I had no idea who Dan was. Never heard of him. No clue. Started reading through his resume. Da, 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 Donovan Bailey, world record holder, uh, coach multiple NCAA champions. Uh, this guy seems pretty cool. I'm going to send him an email. Send him an email. He uh, got back to me a couple couple of weeks later, and he was like, "Yeah, you know what? We're not, we're off season right now, but um, if you wanna if you wanna swing by the office, I always can use some help, and I'll just uh, we'll just have a chat." So I swung by. Thought we'd have like a five to ten minute chat. Uh, he found out, you know, I was part German, uh, lived in Germany. Dan's a huge uh, you know history buff, uh, so we ended up talking for two and a, two plus hours. The first time we ever met. Wow. And so, you know, obviously I realized immediately he's a, he's a really sharp guy. Um, he just said, well, if you're really interested uh, in helping out, why don't you just show up, you know, and learning show up uh, at this date, we start practice at like two o'clock and yeah, I showed up the first day and then spent my first year in grad school with Dan, just learning and taking notes. So obviously that was a huge influence on, um, you know, what happened with me from a sporting standpoint. Wow. That's really cool. And so what did you fundamentally fall in love with in, in track? Was it like, what, what, what are you still in, or did you fall in love with and what are you still in love with when it comes to that sport and particularly hurdles? Right. Well, I think it was just the fundamental, a couple of things we already talked about. I think it's just the fundamental purity of the movement that happens in that sport. You know, if you distill it down to its essence, it's like the basic primal movement patterns that humans have been doing for, you know, centuries that then we kind of evolved into trying to perfect and maximize, um, you know, as we go along. And that we, as we, we continue to move forward, we realize we still haven't uh, reached, the, reached the ceiling yet. So it's, it's basically just kind of like chipping away at something that is very uh, primal and has been in there, been there for a long time. But again, mm -hmm. it comes down to, you know, I think 
can have great individual relationships, um, you know, within the sport, whether that's uh, with athletes or coaches or other support people who are involved in the sport. Um, you know, there are a lot of well-intended people who are operating in that realm, which I really enjoy. And again, it's a blend of sport and science. There's always something new to figure out. There's always new research coming out. There are always different training methods and techniques that, techniques that one can unearth. So again, it kind of goes back to feeding my, um, you know, my interest in information and continuing to build um, on that, if you so will. So yeah, Dan was, Dan was very influential in that as well as other people, you know, at the University of Texas and then obviously Tennessee as well, where I met one of my biggest mentors and went back to him after grad school. Hmm. So, and that's coach Vince Anderson. Like, okay. you know, he's pretty much the guy who set me up, uh, you know, where I fully decided I want to be a track coach. And he's the guy who mentored me then for eight years. Wow. And what did you, what are, what are some of the biggest things you learned from him? Um, the intangibles in some sense that you learned from him? So mm, intangibles I learned, uh, I think, you know, you can know as much information as you want, but you need to be able to convey it. And not, mm. just, not just in a verbal manner, but you have to do it by connecting with the person that you're conveying it to first. So if you can establish a connection, which Dan or Vince or anyone else, you know, I've mainly been able to learn from and observe, um, I, I watched that they, I have a deep caring for their craft, but also a deep caring for the individual that they're trying to impact. And I think once that comes across, you're able to convey information a lot cleaner, a lot clearer, with a lot less, um, you know, interference, if you so will. Mm-hmm. So to me, that was, you know, that was a, a, a big one. And the second one is also, which kind of goes, goes along with connecting, like the importance of just being there. Sometimes it's, you know, an athlete just wants someone to physically be present, you don't even have to do anything, but they just want someone at their side to kind of know that you've got their back if something comes up or they have a question. Um, so, you know, being there early, being there on time, staying a little later if you need to, you know, not rushing things uh, from that standpoint, I think, make, uh, make your job a lot easier. This is perfect. Yeah, for sure. This is a perfect uh, way to pivot on on and back to where I sort of started with, which is this multicultural piece. Something I'm really interested in, and especially from somebody like yourself who speaks multiple languages, comes from, you know, effectively two two countries and then has experienced a lot of other countries. You know, there's cultural differences in the way people in understand information, understand circumstances, understand expectations, all these different things. And so, you know, in reading your, your, your bio, you have Aries Merritt as an example, and then Zi Wen Jun. So you've, you've got people from diff- completely different parts of the world. Um, how do you broker the cultural differences of, and understand the cultural differences of how an athlete learns um, you know, is motivated, um, deports themselves, all these things that affect you as a coach, but at the same time, you have to modify and, and sort of work with in order to get them to be their very best. I'm just really curious about that. Right. Well, I think the first thing is just being aware that those exist and acknowledging that they're important to that person and athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what helps me too is that often if we have a foreign athlete coming in, I can tell them too, hey, I've been there. I've moved to, uh, you know, I've moved to a, a new place where I didn't know anyone. 
you know, to take a chance on something that was important to me at that time. So I understand that, you know, this is going to be foreign and different and we're going to work together to kind of bridge that gap. Um, oftentimes I just try to learn from the athlete how they best have learned and how they communicate and what is culturally important to them to be able to then help them along the way. I think, mm-hmm. you know, obviously being multicultural, growing up in a multicultural city, understanding different languages, I'm able to relate to a lot of different people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that helps me a lot then be able to learn and kind of assimilate different ways into the way I communicate with athletes. I don't have just one way mm-hmm. of communicating because I have multiple within my own culture. Like when we, when I go home, we'll speak Spanish or German um, or English. And sometimes there's even a French word that has a bit of a, you know, a slight different meaning that we might just throw into a random sentence because everyone at home understands it. Mm-hmm. So I'm used to kind of communicating on different wavelengths with different people. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean I'm always successfully off the bat. There's always a learning period. And sometimes I've tried the wrong wavelength and had to kind of adjust my frequency a little bit to, you know, be more attuned to what's going on. Um, with an individual, but uh, I like to think that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly laid back. I'm very approachable. I'm very open so that uh, from that standpoint, me being open helps them be open in return, uh, which then again allows me to understand them better. Mm. What are, what are some of your tricks of the trade, so to speak, for creating trust? Like, you know, in order to be really a really good coach, I, w- I would assume that you agree with that. But, uh, you know, you have to establish a trust relationship between yourself and the athlete. And what, what are some of the things you do um, inherently to create that with an athlete? Here again with another word from our sponsors, Zenkai Sports, who want to let you in on a little secret. Performance apparel hasn't changed much in the last 20 years. Most apparel is still based on moisture-wicking synthetics, which not only make you more overheat faster, but are toxic for your body and the environment. Synthetics don't biodegrade, so that stinky workout shirt you have to throw out after six months, it lasts for thousands of years in landfills. Zenkai is the only cotton-based training apparel on the market, keeping your body safe from those scary petroleum-based synthetics found in most workout gear and giving you that extra edge when it counts. Be a part of the solution and join the revolution for better apparel technology at www.zenkaisports.com. What's in your ZNA? For 20% off your entire order, please use the discount code LYM20. Hmm, That's a good question. I can't say that I have an exact strategy. I think Mm -hmm. it just comes down to, again, being genuinely curious about the person, Mm. being genuinely curious about the person and also explaining the journey that we're going to undertake together to them in detail and letting them know that, Hey, I have a roadmap, but the way to get to the destination, there are different, you know, different roads that we could travel and we may need to pivot or make a U-turn certain ways, as long as we're still headed in the right direction. And they know that I'm kind of guiding them, on in the right direction, uh, I think that helps them a lot. And they know that, hey, this guy has a plan, but he's also flexible. He will solicit my input. He wants to know how I like doing things, and he will adjust. It's not his roadmap. It's a joint roadmap, or maybe it's the athlete's roadmap, and he, I'm just a guy kind of being like, well, if we go this way, that's the completely wrong direction. But if we walk around this mountain range here, we can actually do what you want and still kind of be heading in uh, you know, in the direction that we actually need to go. So 
it's a collaborative, you know, making the person understand that this is a partnership and a collaborative effort, I think initially builds a lot of trust and buy-in as opposed to just a top-down domineering my way or the highway coaching approach. Now, again, I'm not, I'm, I'm very laid back. I'm very friendly. I may not be the coach for every single athlete. There are some athletes who need a hard ass coach who give them a kick in the pants in order to realize their potential. That's not my style. And I fully recognize that I may not be the right coach for every single individual. Mm-hmm. If you're like a mature athlete, an athlete that has a, a vision for themselves an athlete who likes collaborating and has someone who, you know, can work as a springboard to kind of work towards your style and tendencies, then, you know, that's more my style. Do you, do you enjoy more, uh, I mean, you pr- could enjoy both, but I'm just interested in, in enjoy more building something out of the raw athlete package and crafting versus taking somebody who's already at a very high level and refining, or do you like both? Well, I really like both. And I think those are really slightly different skill sets. Like mm-hmm. I've been, I've been fortunate throughout my coaching career to often be handed the keys to different types of Ferraris that I'm able to, you know, soup up, if you so will, and help improve. Um, I feel like that is a slightly different skill set than taking a, a very younger developmental athlete and helping them along their way on their journey to becoming a better and better athlete. Um, I have a great amount of respect for developmental coaches who are able to take a, a very unrefined or unknown talent and maximize and optimize what that athlete is able to get out of themselves. I think that's an unbelievable skill set and a great talent to have. I'm not sure if the way I, you know, I learned I'm best suited to coach uh, developmental athletes. I'm sure I could figure it out, but I'm not saying I would have a, as much of a track record in that as I do in getting athletes who are already somewhat established and developed and then helping them kind of proceed from that level to hopefully the next stage in their career. Well, I want to unpack that a little bit because, you know, when you have a Ferrari come to you, obviously one, and that's kind of the reason why I asked about the trust piece, but, you know, you've got these athletes coming, they've already got this, uh, you know, myriad of different coaches they've worked with, different styles, different approaches. You're coming in with your approach. Then on top of that, you have to craft the trust on what you're going to do next. It's actually going to be the the tweakology that's actually maybe going to find that extra one hundredth of a second or tenth of a second or what have you. How what's your process? And maybe you've never been asked this question, or maybe you have, but to be able to sort of pinpoint your process for deciding this is what I know I need to work on with this athlete that's gonna make the difference. How do you craft that experiment if you if you know what I mean? Right. Well, for sure, I mean we've had athletes come in and we know they're generally interested in, you know, or they may be coming in. So there's a multi-level approach to um, kind of figuring that out. I think there are, um, you know, you, you, a, you watch video of the athlete, you watch training video and you watch race video of the athlete and you watch it through your lens and you see, okay, if this person, if this, if I'm helping this person, like what would I, what would I work on improving? So that's step one. Step two is you can also often solicit information from former coaches of this athlete. You know, Hey, you know, this you know, it's not like any athlete that just comes, you know, the coach, the other coaches, often it's a collaborative effort. The coach may send the athlete here saying, Hey, he's been with me for X amount of years. I want the best for them. I feel like they need a change in scenery. 
and everything here has become stale. And they might say like, here's what we've been working on. Here's historically what they've been good at. Here's where I still feel like they need refinement. So that already gives me a bit of a blueprint. Um, the athlete themselves may say, hey, I know this is what makes me good. And I know these are my weaknesses. And again, that already gives me a template. Now, every athlete is different. You take that and you try to pinpoint the commonalities and the individual uh, differences that you may need to attack and address as you go along. And then you start building a scheme around what you're comfortable coaching and teaching and maybe a bit of what the athlete knows works for them because you can't have someone new come and just take everything that they're used to doing and everything that they're emotionally attached to doing uh, away from them. That's when trust falls apart to me in my eyes. Mm -hmm. You have to work with the athlete uh, to, a, to a certain extent. And again, we're talking about mature athletes. I'm talking maybe an athlete who's you know, beyond college years. If, it's a, if it were a developmental athlete, which, again, I think I would take great pleasure in helping a developmental athlete reach and grow as they go along. If we're talking about a 16-year athlete who may not know much about anything, it's probably more like, shut up. Here's what we're doing the first year. We're going to try all this, and then, you know, we'll go from there. Hmm. And what, what in particular about hurdles versus just pure sprinting is, is really intriguing to you? The danger, Scott, the danger. There's always, there's always, there's always, there's always, there's always, um, there's always obviously uh, the potential for mass chaos in the hurdles. Um, it adds an extra layer of uh, complexity to it because hurdlers have to uh, be able to accelerate and sprint just like sprinters do from a neurological standpoint, but then have to display a completely different technical skill set while running in between and navigating hurdles. Um, I still like to think of myself as a sprints and hurdles coach. I started out helping coach everything. So from 100 to 200 to 400 to 400 hurdles to short hurdles to relays and all that good stuff. I just happen to coach hurdles now, I think mainly by default because I happened to uh, fall in with one of the best hurdle talents on the planet and that's Aries Merit. So everyone associates me with, with hurdles, which is cool to an extent, but I, uh, I, you know, I like to, I like to think I have a, a more diverse skill set than, than just simply hurdles. Mm. What keeps you sane that's not track oriented? Like, what do you, what are you attracted to doing outside of the world of, of track and field? Mm. Well, obviously track and field and, and everything that comes around, it takes up a large uh, <laughs> part of my, part of my time, but um, you know, probably the main thing that keeps me sane is sleeping. I like, I like sleeping. So that may not be <laughs> super interesting, but you know, Hey, I guess hopefully, hopefully a lot of information consolidation happens while I'm asleep, either that, or I just go completely blank and nothing happens, but I wake up feeling well and rested. So, um, but no, I mean, I, I enjoy, I enjoy, I'm kind of a spurt person. I enjoy reading in spurts. I enjoy watching movies in spurts. Uh, I really like music. I like, um, I particularly like rap music. Um, mm. Again, it, it's very rhythmical. I like words and languages. So that just that mixture of rhythm and language and the use of manipulating words and language uh, through different rhythms. Uh, you know, my brain loves that. That's like brain candy to me. Um, I work out. So I try to, I try to stay in, in uh, as good a shape as possible. Um, you know, which I, I kind of let lapse for a little bit um, for, you know, a couple of years ago. And uh, I think about two years ago, I decided I didn't want to become a, 
you know, a, a fat uh, coach like you often see in America. So I kind of got back on the, on the wagon of, of regularly working out. So I work out like four to five times a week. Nice. That's awesome. What, uh, if, if you, did you ever see the movie Moneyball or read the book Moneyball? Um, I saw the movie. It's been a while since I saw it though. Yes. Well, I'm kind of, I'm interested just in, you know, because of the nature of that movie and the idea that, you know, because you strike me from what I've listened to as somebody who's interested in information and data and some data points in some sense, and then also on the human side. So that, that movie sort of really takes a look at, at, at how much data influences, you know, decision-making versus the, the classic scouting of a particular athlete and saying eyeballing them and stuff. And where do you lie on that spectrum? And when you watch that movie, did it strike you to a degree, you know, that, that dichotomy between those two sort of viewpoints? Well, I don't know for sure. I mean, obviously, because I had a, a great interest in, in general managing, you know, obviously Billy mm-hmm. Bean was the manager of the A's mm-hmm. and was using cyber sabermetrics to, um, you know, kind of piece his roster together the way he thought it should work. I mean, I think for sure it's intriguing. But again, like mo- a lot of things in life, to me, it comes down to having a balance between you want some type of objective measurement, but you, in sports, you can never discount the human element. Mm. you never know exactly what's going to what's going to happen and you can't really it's you can't really measure someone's competitive spirit or the way they perform when you know the pressure is high even if they have all the you know necessary uh, metrics surrounding that so i think because i i enjoy watching the nfl draft the way i've kind of worked this out of my brain is i don't know if someone if someone runs fast say a fast 40 in the nfl draft i don't know if that qualifies them as a really good football player Mm. but i think there's a threshold if you run a certain 40 in a slow time i think there's a threshold where like if you're not x amount of fast you're probably not going to be fast enough to be a good football player Mm. so i think i don't know if it tell i don't know if you can pick out the best people but i think it kind of sets a certain ceiling for where the threshold needs to be to be in the ballpark to be able to succeed. There are always exceptions. I will Mm. gladly admit that, but I think as a general rule, I think that would actually, uh, you know, work pretty well. Mm. And where do you sort of, I know Stu and is constantly sort of buzzing the, the internet with all this kind of, you know, speed in, in sport and, sports speed and and the idea of you know how you train to be a soccer player and and how you work on that and where do you lie in that sort of uh viewpoint um because classically like a soccer player probably in the developmental process wouldn't learn how to run but you know there is a there is a value proposition obviously to being uh, a better runner so what's your viewpoint on that and how do you feel it should be implemented or connected into into sport Right. Well, you know, we have discussions around this quite a bit here as a staff at, at, at Altus, even if it's just kind of, you know, very informally. Um, you know, I'm a firm believer that any athlete can benefit from some type of speed or sprint development. Every person can get faster through technique. Everyone also has a natural ceiling. I will readily admit that. We're not going to turn, you know, I'm not... I could have the most amazing technique in the world and I will 
never make an Olympic final. It's just not going to happen. But I, I could clean up my technique a little more and I could be faster relative to my former self. So I do feel that everyone could benefit from, you know, being, again, are you striving to be the best athlete you can be to the ceiling of your potential? Mm. You know, are you striving towards your potential? And I feel like being faster helps you get closer to that potential. So any sport can benefit from that, not just from a technique standpoint, but from a neurological training standpoint, um, from an elasticity standpoint that would then transfer into more, more sport-specific movements. I also think there is very little doubt that the cleaner you run in terms of your mechanics and ability to strike the ground, the less injury-prone someone will be, especially if you have a huge engine behind it. If you have a lot of horsepower, but you don't run with the proper technique, I would contend, and this isn't anything controversial or new, um, that your injury potential would skyrocket. If you can clean that up, you will not only be faster, but you will also be able to remain healthier throughout your sporting life, mm. um, especially for team sports. They, they, they'll play, you know, four quarters, uh, two 45-minute halves, uh, two, you know, no, four 12-minute quarters, whatever, basketball, soccer, football. They do a lot of accelerating and a lot of sprinting. So I think anyone could benefit from that. And some guys do it naturally really well. Mm-hmm. And others need some direction and help as they go along. When, when you get these Ferraris, as you would call them, coming to you or some variation therein, um, and I'm, I'm going to ask you for, you know, there may or may not be a response to this, but mm-hmm. do you find you spend more time refining the, the technical aspects of their, the way they run, the physical underpinnings of their capacity to run, or the way that they manage um, how they recover, recuperate, and input themselves into running? Like what tends to be the big deficit or, or is it very, very different from athlete to athlete? It seems it's very different from athlete to athlete. I don't, can't say that there's one uh, trait of those or one area that needs the most work, if that makes sense. If you're, if you're, already, if you're, already, a, if you're already a high-level athlete in a Ferrari, uh, of course we want to maximize what's under the hood. And we want to make sure that you know, the supporting uh, structures around that are able to... Um, you know, keep you in one piece as you use all that horsepower. But, you know, they're already an elite athlete. We want to maximize that, but we're not going to, we can't, like, the main part is already in place. That's from their parents, you know, that's genetic, and that's maybe from previous stops. And so we're going to continue to work on that, but that may not be the main emphasis, especially in this stage of their career. It may be more towards these sides of, you know, restoration and recuperation and technical refinement. Mm. Um, but I've also had athletes who run fast because they're very technically refined, but they've been underdeveloped when it comes to uh, their neurological capabilities or their strength capabilities. Mm. Um, so we've even encountered, and it's not black and white, it's obviously all on a spectrum uh, of, of needs for that individual athlete. And then we just put a hierarchy to what, uh, what we identify and we need to work on uh, as we go along. 
Mm-hmm. That's kind of the, what I expected the answer to be, but I was curious to see if there was a more of a generalized reality uh, with that level of athlete they come in. This is a part of my podcast that I do. I read uh, from a book that uh, I found out a number of years ago called The Day You Were Born, and it basically takes numerology and astrology and gives you your fundamental purpose um, uh, uh, specifically to you. So you're born April 18th, correct? You said? Yes, correct. So you are an Aries nine. So your purpose is to keep your purpose and sense of self in the face of great opposition and competition. This sensual dynamic combination means action for action's sake, conquest for conquest's sake, and the chance to be better and brighter than anyone else. Competitive? Yes. And that's the problem. These people get ahead on perseverance and a pushy style, but sooner or later, the, the bruised egos around them will get even. What we do to others always comes back. Patience is not their best virtue, nor is reflection or an objective point of view. Experience is their only teacher. The Aries 9 needs to slow down and choose battles instead of fighting them all. Getting wounded by inconsequential issues keeps them from using their powerful force to make a difference. Honest to a fault, they seek the truth, astonished that others do not care. They are magnetic and sexy. Often the only way to slow down is to abstain. Their priorities are their own, yet they are surprised when others don't meet their standards. The Aries 9 needs to pause and reflect. They'll find their life easier to balance. To test the self and not self-destruct is a formidable challenge and one reserved for the final stage varies. Consider the quest for the Holy Grail. In the last crusade, Indiana Jones had to step off a cliff into an invisible bridge in order to find it. Blind faith and a trust in the unknown was required to succeed. For the Aries 9, the journey is spiritual and the challenge is great. If they find what they're seeking, they'll know in the silence of their heart. (laughs) <laughs> interesting i'll, I'll definitely take the I'll, I'll definitely take the magnetic and sexy part right there <laughs> so, no doubt ah, yeah interesting i mean i i knew this segment was coming so it's always interesting to hear um yeah. i'd say there's some that applies i'd say there's some that may obviously doesn't um mm. I'm, i feel like i'm i'm generally more diplomatic in nature so i'm not really someone who's going to go around kicking in doors um <laughs> but yeah that, that's really interesting and fun and yeah for sure and i think these things always come out in little different ways but uh, i'll send you a picture of it so you can uh, digest it in more deep detail yeah no that's 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 great i can't wait to show the rest of the staff i'll have a a good good laugh they may tell you the things you don't know about yourself that are associated with it but there you go they might be like yep all that is true i can't believe you you don't you don't recognize that in yourself like okay where is life headed for you then at this point? Like you, you know, you've, you're, you're kind of obviously at the, at the pinnacle of, uh, of your industry in some sense, working with the kinds of athletes that you work with. What, what inspires you and, and uh, where do you want to grow towards at this point in your career? Well, I think um, obviously short term, uh, it's year 2020, which means uh, the Olympics in Tokyo are just a couple months away. Mm-hmm. So in the short, tor- short term, it is obviously prepping um, athletes and a group of hurdlers to uh, A, qualify, and then B, hopefully represent uh, their country uh, at the Olympic Games. So that's obviously more of the, the short term. And I think, um, you know, long, long term, obviously, um, you know, I'm a VP of performance here at Altus, uh, which comes with a myriad of different hats. Uh, I'm not really 
as entrenched necessarily just in performance, but I kind of take care of a lot of uh, things within the company. So I think for me, the, the challenge is also just continuing to uh, do better for myself and for others um, within the industry and the business. Um, and obviously, again, going back to information, there's always new and interesting stuff coming out that I can learn uh, and grow. So I, you know, I enjoy being where I'm right now because I'm surrounded by way smarter people than I am and I can learn from them. So that's, mm -hmm. you know, that's a, that's a real positive in my book. And I also have, uh, people I can ask for counsel, um, here in Phoenix, but also, uh, through a wide ranging network, uh, that I can reach out to if I'm, if I'm stuck and uh, need someone to point me in the right direction. So I think that's, um, you know, those are kind of the, the short and, and long-term, mm -hmm. long-term things going on. What, um, I'm curious what you take, like, you guys have a, a really robust mentorships sort of internship platform at Altus. It's one of your sort of bread and butter pieces. What has that given to you, the opportunity to have this, this fluxum and jetsam of people coming in with different expertise and asking you questions? Do you, are you a, do you have a love of teaching, of mentorship, and how has that all sort of played itself out for you? Well, it's really rewarding. I am the, I am the uh, de facto kind of organizer and host of these uh, programs, the apprentice coach programs. And it really um, is a way for us to ingrain coaches into the way that we learned how to be coaches and that we would often seek out mentors and hang out with them uh, at their respective place of employment and training and then be able to chat with them and ask questions. So it was, it was very self-directed. It was very informal. Uh, but that's how we figured uh, and discovered that we'd learned the most. So being able to have coaches come in and experience the same thing, um, you know, is, is really rewarding. And it's, it's awesome for us because we use it as a week of internal education. I get to learn more from our guest coaches than they probably learn from me. Uh, but it also allows me to give back and practice being a mentor, which I'm still kind of growing into a little bit. Um, in my brain, I still view myself as a somewhat younger developing coach mm. where I, you know, I, I realize I'm a little older now, probably in the middle stages of my career where I've kind of realized I need to maybe start transitioning a little bit. Mm -hmm. But then once in a while, I'll have, you know, another coach talk to me and I'll be like, oh, wow, this adult is talking to me. I should pay attention. I'm like, you're, you're, you're actually older than they are. I'm like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I got to remember that. So I'm still kind of, I'm still kind of transitioning into figuring out how to be a good mentor. I think mm. um, from that standpoint, I'm definitely not opposed to it. I'm very willing, but I feel like I'm often, I'd often rather listen to other people than hear myself speak. So once in a while I have to remind myself that maybe I need to give a little more and share a little more, um, you know, in order to, to just be part of the, the conversation and, um, mm. you know, allow others to know what I'm thinking and whatnot. So mm. on, on that, um, kind of last question, what, what would be one piece of advice you would give to a younger coach who's coming and spending time with you or anybody at Altus or any environment where they're, they have this opportunity to, to learn from people, what would be your piece of advice to them to get the most out of their experience? Right. So I think not just in our environment, but any environment, um, my advice would be to absorb everything that you can while you're there 
but then not be afraid to ask follow-up questions. And the reason I say this is I would have notebooks of following Dan Paff around or uh, Vince Anderson, or I also did a graduate internship here at, at Athletes Performance, which is now known as Exos, notebooks of what Mark Verstegen would talk about when he was still actively coaching on the floor. And I absorbed all that, but some of it I didn't even understand yet. And I'd go back later and look over my notes and everything that I tried to take in and then realize, okay, I don't understand this. I don't understand this. I don't understand this. But I would also often not hesitate to ask follow-up questions, not to the mm. point where I'm bugging someone, but, you know, respectfully and in my own kind of calm and quiet way when I felt it was appropriate follow-up and ask questions to kind of deepen and further my understanding of what I had kind of seen firsthand. Mm. So clarify what you see firsthand because that to me is more powerful than anything you can simply uh read if you have that combination of observation and then digestion and then following up and and thinking about it over and over again i think to us you know to me that is a very powerful way to to learn and improve as you go along and grow mm. last 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 question which which food do you like better german food or spanish food oh man well I don't drink, I don't like beer, and I don't like sausage at all. So that's why I was asked to leave Germany. Um, well, in, in all seriousness, German food is very heavy. Um, yeah. Spanish, I find Spanish cuisine is very simple, but it is one of the most underrated cuisines on the planet. So I would mm. have to go with Spanish cuisine all the way. Maybe. Sorry, Germany. <laughs> Andreas, it's been a great hour spent with you. I'm sorry I was a little bit late because of our communication, but uh, it's been wonderful to get to know you a little bit better. And thanks for taking the time. Yeah, my pleasure, Scott. No worries. I, I appreciate the chat, and yeah, look forward to look forward to being able to send this out to to a couple colleagues. And yeah, uh, I think I used up my words for the rest of the the week. I'm not really that <laughs> used to talking about myself, so I might be extra quiet at. Uh, practice tomorrow but yeah i appreciate everything you do for the sport i, I love listening to your podcast and gaining a, a human insight into a lot of uh, great coaches and practitioners throughout the world so you know thank you thank you man have a good day thank you very much appreciate you thanks for joining us today on leave your mark i hope we've left a mark on you today and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.